Support for this podcast is brought to you by this summer's must-read novel, Harry's Trees by John Cohen. If you only read one novel this summer, and really you should read more than one novel this summer, read Harry's Trees by John Cohen. After the loss of his wife, Harry Crane plans to lose himself in the remote woods of Pennsylvania's endless mountains. But fate intervenes in the form of a wise old librarian who sets in motion a series of unlikely events that lead Harry back into the light. This uplifting story is a reminder of the enduring presence of goodness in the world, even when it seems dark. Discover the magic of Harry's Trees today. Download the audiobook or pick up a copy wherever books are sold. Like a bookstore. Or an online bookseller. But go to your local bookstore. Pick up Harry's Trees from a bookstore. Forever! Hi, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writer's Panel. As I've said before, I created the show because I wanted to know how the TV that I love gets made. I love having the conversations with industry professionals about the process and business of writing television. We have a really fun and somewhat different uh, episode for you today. Uh, Back at the ATX Television Festival over the past few years, uh, I've been teamed up with Everybody Loves Raymond creator Phil Rosenthal to do something called Breakfast with Phil, in which (laughs) Phil and I sit down and sort of chat for an hour uh, about food and and creativity and community. And I thought it would be fun to bring that to Los Angeles. Um, Los Angeles is arguably the best food city in the world right now. Uh, And Phil indeed argues this on the panel you're about to hear. So we did something a little bit different. We It is Breakfast with Phil. Uh, it it's features Phil Rosenthal talking about food and community and creativity. Uh, and we filled out that panel with some kind of amazing people, including chefs Nikki Nakayama and sous chef Carol Ida Nakayama, who run N slash Naka, uh, one of the greatest Japanese restaurants in the world. It's right here in Los Angeles. Uh, I've known Nikki for 20 years, uh, since her, her old sushi restaurant, uh, used to feed us when we were all sort of starving 20 years old, 20 year olds. Her new place, uh, you've seen featured on Netflix Chef's Table. Uh, she's, she's the real deal. Uh, it's a wonderful conversation. And this panel is rounded out by none other than Danny Trejo, who, you know, as an actor from a million things, including Machete, uh, but like all the Robert Rodriguez movies, this guy is in everything. He's in Sons of Anarchy. You know him from Breaking Bad when his head wound up on a tortoise, um, he, uh, Danny is also a restaurateur and he has a few restaurants here in Los Angeles, Trejo's Cantina, Trejo's Donuts, which is awesome. Um, and so we, and Danny is very involved with all of his restaurants. Uh, so we talk about that and he grew up here in LA as did Nikki and Carol. And so it's a really interesting conversation about, uh, not just the Los Angeles food scene, but what growing up with food means and how these creative people channel that love of food into other endeavors. The second season of Phil's Netflix show, Somebody Feed Phil, is starting this week. If you haven't seen Somebody Feed Phil, it is really worth checking out. He's a terrific guide through various cities, trying different foods, trying to find the best food in that city, but really connecting with people in those cities. Uh, that's that's what 
food means to him, his connection to others. And uh, last season, he went to Copenhagen, and he, or I think that's the season, but he went to New Orleans, and he went to uh, uh, Tel Aviv, and there are six or seven episodes in that first season, another six or seven in this season. And he had a previous series on PBS called I'll Have What Phil's Having, which you should also check out. It's very much in the same style, uh, where he goes to a bunch of, I think, 10 or 12 different cities and, again, tries different food, connects with different people. Check out the Italy episode. Check out the New York episode in this new season. It's it's inspiring uh, for anyone who loves food, but also loves Phil. Before we get to that, uh, we chat with Glenn David Gold, the author of... Sunnyside and Carter Beats the Devil, who has a new memoir out, which sounds fascinating. You're going to want to pick it up. Um, and we will, so we'll talk to Glenn. Before any of that, I've teased for the past six months that I have some projects to announce, and I'm excited to finally get to announce one of them. It's called Hexwives. It's a new comic book from Vertigo Comics. Vertigo, of course, was the home 25 years ago of Sandman and Preacher and fables and like these great creator owned books that for many of us uh, were inspirational and aspirational. Like these were big stories being told in the comic book format, which is a unique storytelling mode. Um, and I'm finding that more and more with Hexwives. So here's what's happening um, Hexwives is. The pitch is, what if Samantha Stevens from Bewitched uh, were not a suburban housewife by choice? Uh, she has all of this power, and she's here cooking dinner and cleaning for her husband. Uh, so what happens when she starts to realize that that is not who she is? In fact, she's a sort of immortal witch, part of a, the head of a powerful coven, who are her neighbors, um, and who are all sort of starting to wake up and realize that, indeed, they are stronger together. Uh, that's the pitch, and Vertigo has been so amazing in their support of this book. They are an absolute pleasure to work with. Hexwives is part of a big relaunch of Vertigo Comics, uh, which will all be happening in the fall, but we'll be talking about it at Comic-Con, and we'll start to leak stuff out in the next few months. Um, and this relaunch is really cool and exciting. Uh, they have seven new books. They're all these really smart, high-concept books uh, from writers like Eric Esquivel and Brian Hill and Zoe Quinn, um, who, you know, the like the famous gamer, and um, Rob Sheridan, who is the art director for Nine Inch Nails, um, Tina Horn, who is the host and producer of Why Are People Into That? podcast. Uh, it's a sex advice podcast. Uh, she's a sex activist and educator. So it's all a bunch of like really interesting people with strong points of view with things to say. And I'm lucky just to be part of this hanging on for dear life and hoping they don't realize that I'm just a television hack. They're all really smart and contemporary feeling books. They're all they all feel like books that the creators of them were compelled to write. Um, Go to vertigocomics.com, check out the descriptions of these books, because they're all really cool. On Hexwives, uh, it was important to me to be, if not the only male voice, sort of in the minority. This is a book about women, and this is a book about powerful women. And it was important to me to not only get that right, but you know, to have input that is not just my own ideas. And in fact, I got really lucky uh, in that 
when I told this to Vertigo, they were more than amenable. Uh, I wound up with these really amazing editors, Molly Mahan and Maggie Howell, who are uh, everything good in the book comes from them. Like, I'm going to be saying this for the next year and a half about how all of my collaborators are making this book great, but it's really true. And I'm not being humble about this. I actually feel bad about it. I wish I had more great ideas in the book, uh, but I came up with the premise, so I have to write it. Um, but Molly and Maggie have been instrumental in get, making this right, getting this right, uh, making this a book that feels emotionally true and honest. Uh, part of the book is about the insidious ways in which men control women. And so the other key collaborator of there, of which there are many, uh, on this book has been my wife, where, uh, you know, she's been with me on this journey, and I wander into the room, and I'm like, hey, tell me, tell me the terrible ways I try to control you. Uh, and she tells me, and I learn something both for the book and for my life. Um, the artist on the book is Mirka Andalfo, who is this incredible Italian artist. She worked on Shade the Changing Man, uh, the annual. That's out there. You should check it out. She worked on the DC Bombshells books, and she hasn't done a regular book like this. Um, yet in her career, and I think this is going to be a huge coming out for her. Uh, she's just knocking it out of the park. And the colorist, Marissa Louise, I cannot say enough good things about. Um, as good as Mirka is, and as okay as I am, Marissa is just elevating every single thing with her colors. She's adding texture and shading to this book, which, you know could have been a blunt instrument, and she's giving it a lot of depth and a lot of soul. Uh, I, I'm excited for you to see her work on this book. Uh, I also have to say, this is terrifying for me. This is the first writing I've done, the first professional writing I've done without my writing partner, Ben Acker, in 15 years. And uh, Ben, when I came to him with this and said, do you want to do this? He said, I'm glad to, but it seems like you got it. So if you want me on it, I'm fine. If not, try it. Uh, so I have to thank him for that. And uh, at one point, he checked in with me on the book and said, how's it going? And I said, it's really hard. And he said, well, sure, it should be two times as hard. And that is not the case. It is 100 times as hard. Uh, you know, not having been there, again, we've been working together for 15 years. He has the answers. He is a guy with amazing ideas. And my job with him is just to pick out the good one. On this book, I have to come up with the good ideas. Uh, so I'm lucky to have the collaborators that I have to help me through that process. Um, the book will be out in October. Uh, I'm going to talk about it incessantly. It is about witches. Uh, I'm obsessed with pop culture witches. Bewitched was one of my favorite television shows growing up, not just because I had a huge crush on Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, but Andorra is a great character. Um, but pop culture witches are so interesting to me because they, they're no, they, like there are set tropes for a witch, but we don't, it's not like Frankenstein, right? There's no one story. And so every witch story sort of adds to the tropes of that. Um, whether it's the Witches of Eastwick or Wizard of Oz or Sabrina the Teenage Witch, like every take on witches plays with the existing tropes and adds something new to it. So one, I'll be doing a panel at San Diego Comic-Con called Pop Culture Witches, and I'll tell you more about that as we get closer to it. Two, on this podcast, I'm going to start interviewing people involved with pop culture witches. Um, I love to hear about how people approach 
the which character, which tropes, which stories. Uh, so I'm going to be tracking down people who have worked in that uh, area and just doing short interviews with them. I hope it's interesting to you. It's certainly interesting to me. I've been lucky that you've indulged me this long uh, on the Writers Panel podcast. But I'll say this. If you love a pop culture witch, if you have someone that you think I should talk to about pop culture witches, um, if you are a practicing Wiccan, hit me up. Uh, I'm fascinated to talk to you. Uh, find me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. It's like the color, only more so. Or find the uh, write me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TV Writers Panel. Uh, and tell me who I should talk to. What are the pop culture witches that you love? Um, what do you think about witch tropes? And if you are an artist, and I know we haven't put out any images yet, I want to see what you think this book is going to be. Uh, put out some Hexwives fan art. Uh, I'd really like to get sort of underrepresented or unknown artists involved in this book, and fan art is a great way to get noticed. Um, look, I have a hundred issues of Hexwives stories that I want to tell. I'm counting on you guys to buy the book so that I get to tell those stories. But um, please know that it, it really is a, a story I'm passionate about telling, and I hope you'll get on, involved with it. Again, you'll be hearing more about it for the next eight months. <laughs> Sorry. Here's today's podcast. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Glenn David Gold is here. Uh, first of all, everybody, go back and listen to the podcast I did in San Francisco many years ago. Yeah. With Glenn and Michael Chabon and uh, Eric Larson. Larson. Yeah. yeah, that was a great group. Yeah. Uh, Glenn is, of course, the author of Carter Beats the Devil and Sunnyside, and he has a new book out. Tell us about it. I have a new book out called I Will Be Complete, and it's a memoir that's told in three parts. Okay. Do you want to talk about those three parts? <laughs> I do. It's funny. I just you, just you just heard me break at the end of that sentence because... I, it took about 20 years to write this book, it yeah. being a memoir. And so my publicist was very anxious for me to have one of those elevator one-sentence pitches. <laughs> so I got one. I boiled one down, and I tried it out. And the first time I used it, the person I used it on hit me. What? So, yeah. <laughs> just suck. Pow! Right in the shoulder. So, what? Well, give me this pitch. Okay, I well, want to okay, hit you. Okay, so uh, I, this is an invitation to you and to <laughs> just the line of people to hit me afterwards. There, it needs a little bit of a, a preamble okay. to get there. So. Uh, this is not an elevator pitch, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> if it needs a preamble. Okay. So my, uh, my, uh, my dad pioneered the use of cassette tapes, and he signed up Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, mm -hmm. the number one band in America, to, uh, on, his, on his label. So he was rich briefly, and then everything fell apart very rapidly. Uh, my parents divorced. My mom and I moved up to San Francisco. And when I was 12, one day I went off to school. And when I came home, my mother had moved to New York without telling me. Oh, my God. So I ended up at that point starting to create my own family. And the first time was by applying to boarding school. I went to a nice boarding school and sort of got friends and sort of rebuilt uh, my life there. Uh, and then I uh, took a job at an independent bookstore in Westwood, uh, a late lamented place called Hunter's that was in the midst of its Viking funeral. It was... So this, one of those things that just couldn't exist these days yeah. of, you know, no one ever filled out the forms properly. And, <laughs> but everybody and everyone who worked there was an artist, uh, performance artist, uh, had something going on that uh, tortured them outside the, uh, the office. And I fell in with a guy who had imaginary children. 
And after he got fired, the imaginary children started writing me letters about how to live my life. What? And yeah, so it was over the course of that period, I was about 19 years old, I started to find out about the power of fiction, hmm. power of a little bit of madness, and then also maybe what the difference between myself and my parents was, mm -hmm. I thought. And then uh, the third volume of this uh, memoir uh, is when I met uh, the woman I thought I was going to marry. Uh, it turns out I met her genuinely the same week. My mother met her soulmate, uh, who is an HIV-positive um, crystal meth addict who uh, threatened to kill her frequently, and he was my age. So what? he is the good son, and I was the bad son. Amazingly, my relationship with this with the woman who was the femme fatale completely fell apart, and my mother's relationship with this guy flourished until he finally died. Oh my God! Uh, and then at the end of that whole experience, I started to realize that maybe I couldn't fix my mother, and maybe she didn't need to be fixed, but that love with a relative like that who's difficult. Is it's imp it's beyond difficult. It's, and it's not toxic is kind of a bad word. I feel like that implies some sort of moral failing. Mm -hmm. It's like my mother made the choices she did, and I have to respect those. And I took a step back, and I started to find some autonomy because of it. So that's a long way of saying that uh, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting at Tosca Cafe in San Francisco, and I sat down next to a woman, a little you know, it's almost my age, and um, and, and she, we were having one of those great conversations you have in your late forties, early fifties, where. <laughs> You're at a bar with a bunch of people who are all flirting, and you're, you're past that. You just know you're just having a good conversation with another person. She was like, she saw me writing. I'm like, oh, you write? Oh, you know, I, I write too. Interesting. Let's talk about it. You have a memoir coming. Oh, how interesting. Wow, what's your memoir about? And I said, well, how funny you should ask, because I have this one-sentence description of the memoir. Well, tell me what that is. Uh, it's about how I learned I should no longer love my mother. <laughs> you must love your mother. She said... If you don't love your mother, you'll never have a satisfying relationship with a woman. She said, if you don't love your mother, uh, nothing in your life is going to ever come together. And I said, I beg to differ. I have this whole memoir for you. And she was very much about holding me at, at, at mm -hmm. an arm's length after that. And I thought, that's a valid response mm -hmm. because mother-son stuff is really tight. And that's why my book's 175,000 words long. <laughs> this is incredible. I mean... Uh, complicated is an understatement, right? And yeah. it seems like it's that complicated relationship that you're writing about. Um, my first question, though, is, you know, you're an accomplished novelist, a, a fiction writer. There's so much to mine here yeah. Um, from your own life. Any one of these three uh, sections could be fodder for a novel. Right. And why not approach it that way? Well, I did. I mean, this is the, the ironic thing is the, uh, the first, uh, excuse me, ironic is the wrong word. I, I, I tend to use the word ironic. It, it's a family word. It should be on our family crest. We use it constantly. <laughs> what's, what's honest is that I used, um, when, when I was uh, first working on Carter Beats the Devil, I was trying to figure out what kind of childhood to give him. And I mm. thought, wow, if he got left alone in a house for a while, you know, not unlike myself, uh, how would it go for him? So yeah. I did. I, I, I stranded him in a blizzard when he was a kid, and I gave him magic instead of writing to discover. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's some parallels there. The other thing is that I found out early on, um, I, I took a class uh, at UC Irvine with, uh, with Ishmael Reed, mm -hmm. and he had this really unfair assignment, which was write a person, write, write a story, first person, opposite sex point of view. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. It's, it's, it's one of those assignments that no 19-year-old can actually do. 
So I did the Kobayashi Maru thing. Of, I went back to my mother's letters, and I typed them out until I got a story. And hmm. I, I typed out a story in my mother's voice, handed it in, got a C- minus because no woman ever thought that way. It was a completely wow. unrealistic betrayal of a woman. That's crazy. It's in the book. Um, <laughs> but like then, I, then there's more to the story than that. But it, it, that frequently happened where if I tried to describe my parents' reactions to things, I was told I had to be misremembering it. There's no way it could have been that way. No real person would ever behave that way. So it wasn't good for fiction. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, but then to tackle this, to tackle memoir and these intense, complicated, you know, heart-wrenching stories i'm sure you know i I remember we talked about this over two years ago Mm -hmm. where you were sort of working your way through it and how do you dig in how you know how do you even start to tell this so that it's honest so that i imagine you had some cathartic sections along the way like how do you even start to put this into shape i'd say years of therapy first Mm -hmm. um but that's interesting i mean a lot of people will warn against because that's telling your story it's doing a draft of your story i don't think so okay or rather if it is doing a draft of your story the first draft of a story is always for you Mm -hmm. and every draft you do thereafter is about getting it to the outside world and i think in therapy there is something about the idea of okay i finally explained it to myself in a way that makes sense well what's the next step so after the stories were a little colder to me, mm-hmm. which I think is a common term for memoirists. I think mm-hmm. people understand how that works. You get a little distance. You get a little for distance sure. from it. Yeah, we're you know, uh, you no longer kind of you know <laughs> hear that thing, Dad. <laughs> you know, kind of feeling. Right. Uh, you have to. Uh, what, what I did was I wrote a draft and I gave it to my uh, of the first third. Um, so uh, the th- when I refer to three volumes, the, all three volumes are in this right. one book. And the first volume is called The Last Kings of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And that's the story of me growing up. Um, my mom put me in among con men. Um, she, uh, she invested um, her, uh, uh, what's the opposite of a dowry? Settlement. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in Pong Machines. Uh, what? And so, you, you got to read the book, man. <laughs> I guess so. So, uh, so she invested her money in Pong machines and then spent six months going around San Francisco collecting money from Pong machines. And then as they died one by one, they would end up in the basement of the house. And I became the world's greatest player of <laughs> half-dead Pong machines. Uh, but I, as I was wrestling with this whole story, I, I turned in a draft of that to my agent. And my agent sent it back to me. And uh, we talked for about 45 minutes. And... Uh, at the end of 45 minutes, she said, do you have any questions? And I said, uh, yeah, did you like anything? <laughs> and she said, oh, honey, never change your font. What? And my, my agent's name is Susan Gollum. She's at Writer's House. If you want to send her your manuscripts, just know. <laughs> She's tough. And the thing is completely fair because mm-hmm. I went back and I reread what she said. And the general complaints were you couldn't. You couldn't feel what I was feeling yeah. as a person. And what I had done, and it was, a, it was, it was an honest mistake, is I kind of took that journalism look at things. Mm-hmm. Says, I'm going to be the floating eye over everything and just let you guys decide about what all this chaos and madness is. And then uh, a friend, Rob Spillman, uh, slipped me a copy of a book called The Situation in the Story um, by Vivian Gornick about how to make yourself a character in your memoir and the reasons behind it, which is that when someone reads something like this, often the things that happen here are so crazy that 
it's like putting a hat on a horse. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah. you, you have to, you have to set things up for the reader to know, okay, how should they feel about this mm-hmm. by how did I feel about yeah. it? So I ended up having to build myself as a character mm-hmm. and that ended That's up, really interesting. It was weird. <laughs> yeah. How, how does that go? Like how, how inward do you have to look and how much distance do you have to have to your own behavior, your own emotions? Yeah. So this is where I, get to a little bit of the uh, the bootlicking in here, which is that around that same time, I had written, I co-written a couple of things with uh, with you and Ben from mm-hmm. the Thrilling Adventure Hour, and I was, I, I would, you were kind enough to let me come to the, the shows where these things came on, and I'd hear people speaking my words up there, <laughs> and hear the audience reaction, and I thought, could I do that for myself? Interesting. And so I started signing up for open mic nights, and I would write, some, I'd think, okay, I'd, I'd, I'd look at a pay, something that hadn't worked for my agent, or I'd see like a couple of lines where I thought, I think there's some humanity in here. I would build a new scene based on that. I'd think, okay, I've got five minutes tonight to read. I'll write five minutes this afternoon. I'd just like race out, do the new material. And, wow. you know, I'd seen enough improv people and enough stand-up people like figure out like through room tone which direction to go and when to mm-hmm. turn the brakes on. And so I just listened. I went, I was a listening tour. <laughs> and I did this a lot in, I was living in Marin County. I did some of uh, that in, and in San Francisco and a few things in LA. And I would read things until I knew why the audience was reacting. Hmm. And I was like, okay, they want someone who confesses to his bad behavior, who is honest about stuff, even if it's difficult. And even if it takes a few dependent clauses to get mm-hmm. in a little deep into what decisions were about. And uh, like, uh, there's, a, there's a really good writer named uh, Jennifer Boylan, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called She's Not There. And she was born James Boylan and transitioned. And she said something that I really, that's always been in the back of my mind, which is she said, men and women each have 50 emotions. For men, 48 of them are, I'm fine. <laughs> And I thought that's really true. But what if you tunnel into that? What if you just really, okay, what is, what's all, that's all armor, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was used to, because my mother's life was very chaotic and you never knew it was coming next. When I, the phone rang, you know, immediately, I don't feel anything. I'm fine. I'm good. Hey, I can handle this settled in on me. And to account for what's actually, what are all the colors involved in there? Yeah. That turned out to be something people wanted to hear, and it turned out because a lot of people have difficult relationships with parents. Sure, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like for for however crazy these stories are, however uh, uh, unusual these stories are, there's something very relatable at the core of this. I wonder if that telling of the stories, uh, that listening and then and the oral telling of the stories, uh, changed the way your pro style is in this book to your others. I mean, I think the other books really do have a very sort of storytelling style, but they're also very literary um, for all that that implies. Uh, did you find that there's a different voice in the autobiography? Yes. Uh, in the fiction, I took on the voice of nonfiction hmm. uh, because I found early on that if you said... Uh, a girl named Beatrice loved uh, a boy named Ronald. That's something. But if you say, in 1497, in a boat off of, <laughs> yeah. you know, Talese, that you know, Beatrice loved Ronald, you, you pay more attention to it because it sounds as if it actually happened. It sounds as if it was recorded somewhere and is thus, thus worth reporting. So that's a trick from nonfiction. 
I actually use the fiction voice more here, yeah. not not to make stuff up because <laughs> that they turn out not to like that very much in uh, in, in no. more. Yeah, it's I, uh, upon. Yeah, it's it's, one, it's like one of the one of those little points I had over my don't make stuff up. Um, <laughs> and but, you didn't have to either. No, That's the amazing thing. But but people do anyway in order to make themselves look better. Or mm -hmm. if there's like a gap, like yeah. when two things happen and you want to relate them. But like I had to resist that at all points. So what the fiction techniques I used were more about inhabit figuring out what was going on in other characters' heads, mm -hmm. uh, understanding cause and effect in a way of like one thing happened and then another thing happened. Just to me, thematically, I could understand how they fit together uh, and could suggest that. And then also flashing forward, flashing back, uh, and understanding uh, how to put my thumb on the scale in a way rhetorically. Uh, it's out now. I Will Be Complete by Glenn David Gold um, from Knopf. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to dig in, especially after hearing you talk about it. I think people you. will enjoy it. Um, let me ask you as we just wrap up, um, have you read anything great lately that you want to recommend? Uh, I just read Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson because mm -hmm. um, he passed away recently and I went to see uh, some people speak about him. They told me to start there. It was fantastic. And then I read Jesus' Son also by him. Had you not read it before? I had not. I'm surprised. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of it yeah. and I, I knew about it. I might have even pretended to have read it. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. I just actually, uh, Powell's Books just had me write a, a, a top five list of books and I ended up writing a top five list of books I'd pretended to have read. <laughs> and it was very <laughs> embarrassing. Uh, you'll have to you have to go on Paul, Paul's right. Books website to see what it is I admitted nice. to not reading. But but Jesus, Son, and, and no, I mean, it's, and I had the same effect on me that it has on so many writers, which is, how did he do this? I would like to do this. I can't do this. Yeah. He, you just have to stand back and not be competitive. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. He was yeah. really in a class of his own. Yeah. Um, and which is so, I think, I think unusual for a contemporary writer, too. Yeah. We don't get a lot of those. Yeah. Um, and, and the poetry, but also the spareness of his style is... is just compelling to read. It is. And also, you do get the sense that it was like one draft and done. And yeah. if he tried to change something, the whole tower would collapse at some point. And it's interesting. So the opposite of that, uh, I've completely fallen in love with the, with the show Barry. Mm -hmm. And that's because it just feels so perfectly constructed. And yet, I could not tell you what the worldview in that show is. Interesting. It's, it's just like... Okay, is it zany? Is it poignant? Is it this? Is it that? But not, it never feels slapdash or thrown together. There's something about it that holds it in a unifying force that I want to see the next season now to understand how it builds out because there's no missteps in the whole thing. Oh, interesting. And I feel that like it reminds me, it reminds me of a novel and that it deepens with every episode mm -hmm. and it feels like there's a longer plan and it's saying something, but it's not letting the editorial... You know, I should not butter the stairs when grandma is standing at the top of them kind of morals to it. <laughs> there is a moral outlook to it, however, without it being overbearing. Mm -hmm. It's it's too funny and violent and interesting for that. Uh, Glenn, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, if someone hasn't had any before, what would be the first one you want them to try? Hearing. Really? Hearing is the natural place to start. Number one. Yeah, number one. Marinated hearing. Wow, that's gorgeous. Look at that. And, uh, Phil? Yes. I know you're uh, an American. You like to eat with your hands, but you need to let it rest in the plate and uh, Sorry, use your good. knife and fork. Sorry, I'm the American embarrassed. <laughs> As if we Sorry. don't have enough. <laughs> Somebody beat Phil. It's pretty great. Just to give you a little background, um, 
I'm a TV writer myself, and uh, I met Phil a few years ago at the ATX Television Festival, and they had us do this event called Breakfast with Phil, where Phil and I would sit and uh, kibitz for an hour. And you're going to notice that I become more Jewish once Phil is here. <laughs> and the truth is, so will Nikki and Carol and Danny. <laughs> uh, everyone becomes more Jewish in Phil's presence, um, which is a good thing. Um, so we did this show, this little morning thing, uh, where we just kind of talked about food and writing and creativity, and it was always very inspirational to me. We've done it for a couple years in a row now, and I thought there must be a version of this we can bring to Los Angeles, because one, what an amazing city for food and creativity and writing. Uh, and there's a conversation that I think is not just interesting, but also maybe important uh, to have about that stuff specifically in LA. So. We're going to touch on some of those things. We're going to talk about the food journeys that these folks have been on. Uh, we are going to take some questions from you guys as we get towards the end, so I want you to think of your questions as we go through. Please uh, keep your questions brief. I'm going to have a microphone that we can sort of hold out to you because um, I want to make sure we get to as many of you as possible. Um, just to give you a little background why I feel like I can do this, which I don't 100% feel like I can do this, so please bear with me. <laughs> um, I grew up in a food family. Uh, my parents had a cookie company for 25 years in Boston. And uh, I was talking to uh, Carol backstage. She also grew up in a food family, and you'll hear about that. But my sisters and I would be thrown into this cookie factory uh, when my little sister, you know, she could barely walk, and she'd be sitting in the corner with her hands in barrels of flour while the, my other sister was putting together boxes and I was trying to pour a 50-pound bag of sugar into an enormous mixing bowl without falling in. Uh, so this was my life for, for, you know, all of growing up, really. And uh, food played such an essential role in my childhood and in my adulthood as well. Uh, my, my parents uh, sold the company after 25 years. And by the way, these are married people raising three children, working in a food business <laughs> together 24 hours a day. It's amazing that they are still together. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you this. So, so they sold the cookie company uh, after 25 years. What are we going to do with ourselves? Uh, so they bought a bakery. <laughs> they bought this bakery. It's uh, in near BC in Boston. And it's a, a terrific bakery. It's the best challah you've ever had. Um, I wish we had some here. Let's do this again, and I'll get them to ship us some. Uh, they've had that for 10 years as of this week. Uh, it is a thriving bakery. My mom loves it. She's there every minute of the day. A year ago, my wife and I were at home visiting, and we got this story from my mom, my dad, and my sister, who frequently works for them. We got it separately from each of them. Uh, <laughs> my mom had to fire my dad. <laughs> Uh, but so these, this is the food people I come from, um, and uh, I, you know I try to make food part of my life. We love to have people over. We love to cook for people, as I'm sure many of you do. So these are the conversations I love to have around food, around creativity. Uh, you guys said you are watching Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. Um, season two is coming in July. Yeah, just announced. I want to say uh, before I before I bring him out. Um, people say to me, we love the show, we love Phil, he's so charming on it, and I say, yes, 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 I agree. They say, but that has to be an act. 
Like he, he can't be so funny and so warm and so silly and so, so muggy to the camera. Uh, and I said, this is not an act. This is Phil. What you see is what you get. And that, I think that comes through and it's what part of makes that show so special. It's part of what makes him so special. Please welcome Phil Rosenthal. <laughs> Phil, they love you. I love, I love them. <laughs> Look at the nice people. Yeah, Hi. it's a hot crowd. But we lied on the marquee. It, there's no breakfast. Uh, <laughs> it's, we'll have brunch. We'll have brunch. We'll have after. lunch. We'll have lunch. And I'll have dinner, too, if you want. <laughs> How's everybody? How, <laughs> um, how are you, Ben Blacker? I'm Look very well, you. thank you. You've got a stool like you're a troubadour. I may do a few numbers. <laughs> No. Did you ever learn? Did you ever have to learn an instrument? I tried every instrument. I was <laughs> terrible at everything. Yeah. Uh, at what age did you give up? Five. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Phil, we have talked in the past, and you have talked uh, both on the show and off about your food upbringing with your parents. It's and a sad story. It is a sad story. Can you tell, give the folks a, a little taste of that? My mom is wonderful, I'm going to say, in case this is being recorded. <laughs> She's fantastic in every way. But I think even she would agree that food is not that strong suit, right? <laughs> that cooking. And she was a working mom. You know, she had a job outside the house. And, and my dad worked. And so when they came home, and we didn't have a lot of money, and so it was, it was kind of an afterthought, the food. Right? We used to beg, and I mean beg, to go to McDonald's. Uh, just because it had flavor there. <laughs> right. They had flavor. What, what was, you know, again, this My is mother had a setting on the oven for shoe. <laughs> what was she serving uh, you and your brother? Uh, if well, it, what would you call if it? it was, if it was meat, right, it would be the cheapest cut of meat, and it was just put in the oven until it was gray. <laughs> And then, and then it was tough to eat. It was, I said in the first credits, I think, of the first show, that it was like a punishment. It was, it was, you chewed and chewed and chewed and chewed and chewed and chewed and chewed for no reason. <laughs> and I remember stuffing it in my face. They wouldn't let me leave until I ate because I was skinny little nothing. So I had to finish and I wouldn't, didn't want to finish. So I stored in my cheeks like a chipmunk and then I would be excused and go to the bathroom and spit it out. How were you nourishing yourself as a cookies, a cookies, <laughs> Entenmann's donuts? And then I love, and again, I know I know you've told this before, but I love the story about you discovering flavor. Uh, yes, as, I was. A, a, were you in college? I was in college. Was? I, the, I swear to God, this is true. I went to uh, an Italian restaurant, Hofstra University. Some other freshmen and I, we have no money. We go to a very cheap and terrible Italian restaurant in Hempstead, New York. Beautiful Hempstead. <laughs> and uh, I remember eating just a simple dish of pasta and sauce and thinking, this is the most delicious thing I've ever eaten in my life. And I'm moaning and go, oh my God. And they go, what's wrong with you? I said, this is fantastic. What? It's just pasta and sauce. No, no, no. There's something. There's like, what are these chopped up little bits, these little white bits in the sauce? They go, what? Garlic? I said, yes! Garlic! I never had garlic. I was living like an animal. And this, this I feel like, 
sent you on a path. I mean, it we did. sort of we. I feel like we get to see this in. It's like in The Wizard of Oz when she opens the door. Now it's in color, the movie. <laughs> That's what it was like. And so I, I literally, you know, I'd had things that I liked to eat before that hot dogs and pizza and hamburgers, like everybody else. French fries, my enemy, the French fry, always wins. Uh, but now I started, and then when I graduated and I moved into Manhattan in a, in a tiny apartment with another guy. I was reading the New York Times, and they, I was reading about these magical places called four-star restaurants, <laughs> right? And I just thought this was like, like Disneyland. You've got to go. How do I go? They were, in the early 80s, these were meals that cost $100. $100. I was eating tuna fish for dinner. You know, I was eating, you know, nothing. But I thought, I'm going to save up. These were my values. My parents thought I was out of my mind that once a year on my birthday, I would go and I would bring my roommate with, he would also save up, he was another idiot, and we saved up. <laughs> By the way, we thought we two guys just going to the restaurant, we gotta, it can't, it's not, so we could afford to split a girl. <laughs> we brought one girl. You, the two of you would take someone out. Yes, one, just <laughs> to class birthday. up the act a little bit. Right. But we went to places like Lutece. I don't know if you've heard of these places. The Quilted Giraffe, La Bernadette, which is still there. La Grand Wee, I think, is still there. Uh, La Cote Basque, you know? And I'd wear an ill-fitting jacket and tie. And then I, uh, I, I would ask, could we see the kitchen? Did and we would really? go, yeah. And they'd show you the kitchen? Yeah, and I was taking pictures even then. Yeah. I was. And what, I mean, that's so much to take in as a young man who's entering this world for yes. the first time. What were you taking with you from seeing the kitchen, from experiencing those meals? Fantasy life. It yeah. was really like a, another, like traveling. Yeah. Yes. A great restaurant is like a vacation, isn't it? A great restaurant can transport you to another place. And this was a much better place than my one-bedroom <laughs> apartment in Washington Heights with another guy. <laughs> Part of what is very funny about the story to me is your remark that your parents didn't understand this. No. And we watched... Until I took them. But, but, but still, we watch the show, and it feels yes. like that you're having that same conversation. They still don't get it. <laughs> they still... I, I, I think we did a promo with them where mm -hmm. I'm talking to them, and my father's like, people really watch this? <laughs> I said, ask them. Well, ask who, says my mother. Ask the people. They're watching right now. My father said... All right, you don't have anything better to do than to watch this. <laughs> nice. It's nice to have that support from your yes. family. <laughs> uh, yes. let's, they let's, are, I know they're the stars. I know I have no... Uh, come on. No doubt. Oh, no, I know. It's not why people, people say, say we like the show. We love your parents. <laughs> That's true. We love... I say, so why do I bother traveling? I can sit in the kitchen with them. We can save Netflix a lot of money. Uh, let's bring out our guest, Phil. Liz, please, welcome uh, one, our guest. One more round of applause for Phil Rosenthal. Now, now, some people, now some people with talent. Uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you, so uh, I will tell you right now that uh, one of my favorite chefs is here. Uh, I've known her, I re only realized recently, for 20 years. Oh. Uh, yeah, we, I used to go to her little sushi place over on Melrose Avenue called Azami. Yes. Uh, which was the most incredible sushi, and I could afford it yeah. at 20 years old right. uh, because she had a special hookup, which she'll talk about. Um, so from the amazing restaurant and Naka, please welcome Nikki Nakayama and Carol Nakayama as well. 
Welcome, guys. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you for having us. Uh, we'll get to you in a minute. Take a break. Uh, finally, you know him as an actor uh, from such films as Spy Kids, from Machete, uh, and the sequel, Machete Kills. Uh, Desperado, he, uh, he has an incredible, incredibly lengthy resume of movies that we've all seen. I'm a little nervous. He has this documentary uh, that is recently out that I want to talk about as well, which is about uh, uh, prison reform and life in prison. Uh, but he's also, and the reason we want to talk to him here today, is he's a restaurateur and a food lover. Uh, Trejo's Tacos, Trejo's Cantina, and Trejo's Coffee and Donuts. Please welcome Danny Trejo. Good to see you. Welcome, everyone. Thank you Hello. so much for being here. Um, I want to start... He does look like Marsha Brady. <laughs> <laughs> Went from being Machete to Marsha Brady. <laughs> uh, I want to start uh, by talking to... Phil, you're going to take a break for a minute. Uh, Danny and Nikki, both of you were born and raised here in Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, Danny, you were born in Echo Park, is that right? Uh, yeah. yeah uh, I was born in Echo Park and then uh, was there for a while and then went to Texas. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to stay in Texas three years, but I lasted three months. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I came back and my mom and dad bought a house in, in the San Fernando Valley and that's okay. where I grew up. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about... Uh, we were talking a little bit backstage about your mom cooking all the time. Great cook. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about the, the sort of food life you grew up in. Well, uh, my house, in my neighborhood, my house was the only house that had a dad. So everybody else kind of like single, single parent. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and so everybody just ended up at my house. And my mom was just a, a, a cooker. <laughs> you know, she just, had, she just cooked and uh every time you showed up at the house it seemed like she was always just cooking and but she was always had something on the stove going you know and so we uh we ate and 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 latino families the first of the month you you eat really big meals and then towards the end of the month they're kind of like you're mixing stuff <laughs> <laughs> Mom, what is this? It's called We Mix It and You Eat It. <laughs> but it was delicious. She was like actually a really good cook. What, just, what kind of food was she cooking, especially at the beginning of well, the Well, you know, kind of, at the, well, in the beginning, like for breakfast, I've, all my life I've always liked two enchiladas with two eggs over easy mm-hmm. on top. And that's breakfast. And, uh, and uh, beef enchiladas. And then, uh, and towards the end of the month, you'd get... You know, like one enchilada with no egg. <laughs> or just, you know, leftovers or whatever, you know. And did, but, did you have uh, siblings or was there a lot no, of family just, around? No, just it was you. me, my mom, my dad. That's okay. the way we grew up. And did yeah. you sit down and have breakfast together? Not, not really. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my dad Your worked. Dad was working. You know, right. so he was, he, he was got out of there early. It was kind of a... My mom was a great cook. She always talked about opening a restaurant. We always talked about opening yeah. a restaurant. We joked, you know, but but in the 50s, you know, my, my dad was kind of like the Mexican Archie Bunker. 
You know, every time we talked about a restaurant, he would say something like, I have an O'Keefe and Merritt right there. Why don't you guys just step in there and cook something? And, <laughs> and so it never became, it never came. Yeah. But uh, but he would eat and then go, and then I'd get up for school, and I'd, you know, I'd get ready to go to school. Sometimes it was a big breakfast. Sometimes it was a, a dash, and, you know, sure. dine and dash, you know, so I know. Yeah. Uh, we were talking, I want to I wanna make sure we get to this, we were talking about once you got a little older and maybe you weren't as round, around so much, your friends would still show up oh, yeah. at the house. Well, well even now, when I go out of town now, when my mom was alive, uh, my friends would always stop in, because my dad passed away, they'd always stop in and, and check on her, you know, like every day somebody stopped by, and, and uh, every time one of my friends would stop by, the neighbors would call, are you okay, there's a guy outside, you know, there. You know, like, <laughs> Friends don't look like citizens, you know. And so, <laughs> some of them look alienish, you know. And uh, and uh, there's a guy with a big tattoo on his neck, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but you know, she was always cooking, always. You know, yeah, and she would feed. She would feed the neighborhood. And, right? They'd stop by to eat, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's really that's really lovely. It's a nice way to grow up, surrounded yeah. by that love and that food. Um, Nikki. <laughs> you were born. You were born right here in Los Angeles, yes. right in Koreatown. Yes. Is yes. that right? Yes. Um, what was what was it like there then? Because I think we've seen just in the past five years that area really come up to be a restaurant haven, but I don't think it always was. No, when I was growing up in this area around Third and Vermont, it was mostly um, McDonald's and Burger King, <laughs> yeah. and I grew up eating a lot of that too because that was what was available. Um, it was funny because in our household, we, my parents, um, have a seafood business. So they would bring home like lobsters and crabs and like a lot of fish. And I was like, I'm not going to eat that. Really? Look at it. It's so scary. <laughs> I remember coming home one day from school and there was like lobster, I think, hanging out in a box and it was alive. Yep. And I was, I was like, Oh my God, it's going to climb out and kill me. <laughs> and then, and then, my first experience with spaghetti was my brother, he was like, oh, I'm going to make you guys spaghetti. And we're, we were all so excited because he's a little bit older than us. So he takes top ramen, the noodles, <laughs> and and then he like boils it up and he puts like ragu sauce on it. And then I ate it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like the best thing I've ever had. <laughs> so when I ate spaghetti for the first time, not top ramen. I was like, what is wrong with these noodles? <laughs> They're so soft. That's crazy. Yeah. So. Uh, so, so it wasn't really a food sort of household, even though your parents worked right. in that business. I assume they were working all the time and they would bring this home. So, were, did your parents cook as well? My mom cooked because she had to. It was mm -hmm. more of an afterthought. And luckily, she actually has a really wonderful palate for cooking. She just hates it. So... Uh, when microwaves came around, it was like, let's just microwave this. Let's just microwave that. And yeah. um, But it was really fun because even though we were being influenced by new things such as the microwave <laughs> and, you know, new cuisine, just having American food more in our lives, there was always a really good balance of having a lot of Japanese foods and Asian mm -hmm. foods in the house. So it was like old and new all the time. Interesting. So, Do you think that has had an impact on the way that you cook? Yes, I can't help but uh, feel like at Ennaka, when we talk about our menu, we always want to incorporate things that we're familiar with that is really um, authentic to us. Mm -hmm. So for me, 
or Carol to cook a very traditional Japanese dinner, it always feels like it doesn't translate so well, even for ourselves. So we try to cook food that is like basically what we grew up eating. So there's like a little bit of Western influences, and then of course there's our Japanese influence. And I think, that, I think that resonates with a lot of people. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, especially for a certain generation, yes. right? Is, you know, at a certain point, we're all immigrants here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Carol, you grew up in a food family here in Arcadia as well. I did. My parents owned a sushi restaurant. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't have time to find a babysitter for me most of the time, so I would end <laughs> up kind of shoved in the corner of the kitchen until I was old enough to actually start helping. Mm-hmm. So... And what were your responsibilities as a kid? As a kid, to help your I parents? did the dishes a lot. I peeled a lot of carrots. <laughs> she she still them. peels carrots today. She hates it at work. Tried to get so I have my stuff going carrots. Did you have this experience where, um, because your parents had this restaurant, I'm sure they worked in it. We were saying, you know, 24 hours a day. It's a huge undertaking. Did you try other things? that were around when you were growing up? Or was it just you were in their place all the time eating their food? I constantly ate Japanese food to the point where it was like my dad, for one of my birthdays, decided you know, to make this beautiful sushi platter. And he brought it home in between his you know, lunch shift and dinner shift to surprise me. And I was appalled. I was like, oh. no, not yet. <laughs> I'm sure it broke his heart and stuff. That's what we do to our parents, though. Uh, and then you were telling me that you tried to escape the food yes, business. Just, Do you want to talk about that for a minute? You, I think most kids, when you grow up with parents in yeah. a certain industry and you see how hard yeah. it is on them, you think, oh, my God, why would anyone choose to do this for a living? So I kind of had that mentality as a kid, but I would never choose to be a chef or yeah. work in a restaurant. And... <laughs> <laughs> Well, here you are. Uh, but it was sort of, you, you actually did take that journey, though, and sort of rediscovered this yeah, world and all of that. Um, I think the corporate world didn't work out for me. It was worse sitting in front of a desk for me than peeling carrots. Than peeling carrots for 12 hours a day. Well, and specifically, uh, you didn't like dealing with the customers, right? Yeah, client relations wasn't my thing. Why not? You know, <laughs> people with money. Right. It's a lot of the people I was doing. I used to work in the web industry when it was first starting up, and so there was a lot of money out there for people to dump into these websites that had no business model whatsoever. But they're I'm also sure very changed. demanding when they have that kind of money yeah. and want something built. And so I realized, oh my God, I can't deal with these rich, demanding people. And how's the business going now? <laughs> <laughs> Love them. <laughs> Every customer, right? <laughs> Every customer. Um, I want to talk about the sort of Los Angeles food scene and how it's sort of changed over the past 25 years. And Phil, how long have you been in Los Angeles? Since 1989. Yeah, so, so I really saw it happen. Yeah, and you were engaged with food by then, yes. so you could be sort of a part of this that. This is the best restaurant city in America, if not the world. What? Because of people like this. Absolutely. And be, our, our, our superpower is actually our diversity. The world is here, right? 
So when you go to their restaurant, this is a fine dining experience. This is an intimate fine dining experience with great love and care into every detail of every dish. I can't recommend this enough if you can get in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and Danny, of course, is serving the masses and, and doing a fantastic job. And I saw it to about two years old, the first restaurant. I live very close to his first uh, place on La Brea. And I thought it was good right away. And now it's become just spectacular and he's grown and it's I, I think it's wonderful i really do but you know about la we have the biggest mexican population outside of mexico we have the biggest japanese population outside of japan the biggest korean population outside of there are many many we have more people here from outside their native lands than anywhere else on earth that's why we're good they bring their you can visit every province of china by going to the different neighborhoods in the san gabriel valley <laughs> and it is i think you know you can get traditional food but you can get like nikki was talking about this sort of food for the people who grew up here right who are maybe yes. second generation and are fusing different ideas of what traditional food can be. And we were talking backstage and you were saying, tell the people do, about uh, how you're using more California, how your restaurant yeah. is actually becoming more Californian. Yes, um, so we decided that we needed to incorporate a lot more California ingredients into our Japanese food because it felt so much more authentic to who we are and to what our Kaiseki restaurant is in terms of its uh, philosophies. So it's really been amazing because the journey has led us to use a lot of Southern, I mean, a lot of California fish that we once would would have never thought to use for sushi or sashimi. It's like it's the discovery of these wonderful ingredients that the mentality wasn't there before. It was always, oh, we have to bring it from Japan because it's so much better. But it's wonderful to discover that California itself has such a wonderful selection. And I think that being able to source those ingredients and being able to share that with people that come in and dine is. It's a very interesting topic of conversation as well as educational for everybody. I'm curious to know, let's could be educational for me, what are <laughs> some of the California fish that well, we could find on your menu? Well, aside from the really wonderful sea urchin and spot prawns and abalones shellfish-wise, but there's a lot of wonderful rockfish, mm -hmm. and there's a black cod that's caught locally as well. Those are really wonderful, flavorful fish that you can't do sashimi to them so much in Japan because they're not caught off in those waters as right. readily. They're not native to the area. Right, right. So, so you get it the freshest here. Yes, yes. That's interesting. So I think that's something we need to be very proud of to yeah, be in California. Absolutely. That's great. Yet another reason to go visit and <laughs> um Danny, tell me a little bit about, you know, Going outside of the home for food for you uh, here in Los Angeles, maybe since like the 80s, you, you've been working as an actor since around then. Yeah, 85. You, you know, you get to, you got to travel around. How is Los Angeles food different to the other places you've been? Uh, I think like he said that, you know, in LA, you can get any kind of food you want. And the good thing about LA is you can, we got the pantry and you can eat all night, you know. No. <laughs> you know 24, you know, because especially in, in, in my field, a lot of times, you know, you're wrapping at 1.30, 2.30 in the morning. So, you know, you can either go to the Pacific Dining Car or, or uh, 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 the pantry or yeah. find, you know, 24 hours and, and get a good meal, you know. And uh, That's true. I, I, the thing that I hate about every place I ever go to is that 
oh no, we stopped serving breakfast at 10. What? <laughs> you know, I can't believe you. You cannot get breakfast anywhere. You can't other... even get it here. I got places I can get breakfast at any time of the day. You, know? you can get anything you want at any time you, of the day. You're so funny. People know me. So when I walk in, hey, breakfast. You know, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, and it's like I, I, I love the food here because he says it's so eclectic anyway. Mm-hmm. And and uh, when we opened our, our restaurant, we were thinking, this is L.A. So, And I was working with autistic kids mm-hmm. And somebody, a doctor said that autistic children don't do well on gluten. So let's do gluten-free. And so now we've got all these families coming that have like autistic children because mom don't have to cook three meals. And, and in, especially like in the, I guess a lot of industries, well, like five of us will want to go to dinner and, oh, well, wait, I, I, you know, I'm vegetarian or it's okay. I'll eat a salad, you know, so, so we got it all. We got vegetarian and, uh. Uh, vegan, and and you can you know, bite into a cow if you want to. You know what I'm saying? Phil, when when you moved here, do you remember sort of the first lightning bolts of restaurants that started to make a splash to you? Yeah, I remember Campanile. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Which and only closed a few years ago. Well, that this is the genius of our city is is Nancy. Silverton. I mean, she's the, the queen, right? So, uh, and and now the the moza, the three mozas are, are so beautiful, and she's expanding even beyond that, and uh, she's been a tremendous influence. Absolutely, yeah. Do can you talk about that for a minute? How you've seen that influence spread to other restaurants? Uh, well, it's funny, you know. Italy just opened here, and it's fine. It's good. <laughs> But if it had opened 15 years ago, it would have been amazing, like it did in, in New York, uh, uh, which I don't know, how old is the one in New York? Maybe 10. My point is, we have so many amazing Italian restaurants that the opening of Italy is not really a big deal. Because we have Bestia downtown, we have Felix on the west side, right? We have Moats in the middle, we have so many other places Trails to get <laughs> Those spaghetti tacos Are working Are you going to go Italian soon? <laughs> I'm waiting for that. Uh, but this actually suggests an interesting question to yeah. me, and I think all of you can address this. Uh, the, the challenge of opening a restaurant in Los Angeles where all of this stuff is available, especially now, um, all of you have done it. Can you talk about those challenges? And you're all making it work, too. So how have you made it work? Uh, and Nikki, let's start with you. Uh, Ednaka has been around how long? Seven years? Yes. We've been open for seven years yeah. now. And um, my, f- my first restaurant that we met at yes. Azami was a very big challenging experience for me because I didn't know that much about having a restaurant. So I always remember the first day when we opened, it was like, oh, let's just roll up the doors. It's Thursday. I think this is a great day to open. And then... Initially, I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, we just need to at least have like 50 customers a day. I think that should be okay. We opened the doors and we had like no customers the whole day. And I was like, oh my God, what have we done wrong, you know? So luckily with time, people like you came and came to support us and we built a good following. But uh, when I first opened at Naka, the initial feeling was like, 
Maybe there won't be any customers yet again, but it's, this time I'm okay with it because I understand it. I've been there before. So, so, so what do you do when you open a restaurant uh, to combat that? So you understand now that mm-hmm. people aren't going to flood in on the first day. How can you start to adjust both your own mindset, but also what the restaurant is doing? I think initially the... I had to ask myself because this was the dream restaurant that I wanted to open. And I thought, what, what is the worst case scenario that could happen? And I thought, okay, if I only have like one customer or two customers a day, I can do the service too. And I can wash the dishes and I can, you know, clean up the restrooms. It's no big deal as long as I get to do this dream restaurant. So I think I was at that point where in my life I was ready to go down that hole if it need be. Mm-hmm. But luckily, I mean, with all the years that I had the sushi restaurant, I was fortunate enough to make really wonderful friends that came to support me. So little by little it grew. And I always tell Carol that our restaurant works because it grew from nothing, like one step at a time. Had it been like really popular in the beginning, I don't think any of us would have been able to handle it. So it's that like constant trying to figure out ways to make it better and trying to find out what the people want and when they come and visit that it, that keeps us growing. Yeah, I mean, it really is very, you, you engage with the customers yes. in a very direct way. And I think that, that yes. really helps. It, it, you're also doing something you love. I, I and love I think it. all of us <laughs> in food and in art have found that when you do something you love, people tend to respond to that. Um, Carol, I want to jump back to you to talk about this restaurant that you had before Ennaka. Uh, and it was for a few years, right? Yes, it was for five years. I had, yeah. I had to kind of stick it through for the full lease. And is this... <laughs> is this a, <laughs> so you know you loved it. Well, <laughs> we I can tell. I amidst, d- during that time, oh, too. I so I was like ready to jump ship and come help her, but <laughs> I had to... Um, was this the restaurant that you opened with your mom? No, this is this was after, right after I came and helped my mom open a couple of restaurants. Okay. And then I was like, I can't work with family. <laughs> but, but, and now. <laughs> now. See, this is like a recurring life problem. Exactly. It's, a, it's a different story now. Um, as, as Nikki said, it's the family you choose. It makes it a lot easier. Um, but doing that restaurant for five years on your own, you said you had your brother was in a competing restaurant yes. in the same... Uh, the same square, right? Uh, the same, same square, right? It's crazy. But you grew up in restaurants and you had these experiences. What did you, were you able, did you have an edge, do you think, in opening that place and, and, and uh, working in that place because of your background? I mean, maybe as far as having family to ask advice about certain things, whether it be dealing with the landlords or the city permits and things like that because those things are like the logistics of opening a restaurant that nobody ever teaches you in school or prepares you for. You just kind of have to jump into it and deal with it. But as far as running the business, I think because of my background growing up in the kitchen, it kind of was something that I never thought about clearly. It was just something that we did, you know? So it didn't occur to me, oh my God, I have to tell my crew exactly every <laughs> single step that needs to be done. Sure. You know? And those are the things I think even now with Ennaka, because we're so hands-on with the way we do the food that we get someone in to help and it's like, oh, we forgot to tell them that they, I don't know, intuitively we know that you have to you know only blanch the oysters for 10 seconds not 30 or else you're gonna cook them you know? 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting, so, that communication becomes yeah, an important thing. Yeah, that level of communication yeah. is something I wasn't prepared for. Well, that's very interesting. Um, and Danny, uh, I know with your restaurant empire, uh, you you are very hands-on. I, I read an article that said, you know, you if you're going to do this, if I'm going to put my name on this, I have to like all the food. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of putting your team together as well? You know, I was, first of all, I was really blessed because uh, when we opened, I, I got a great publicist named Larry Fink, and, uh, and uh, you know, they put the word out, you know, and, and I, the problem with being, I guess, a celebrity and opening a restaurant is you you start thinking that just because your name's on it, it's going to be good. And there's been a lot of celebrities that have tried to open up restaurants and then gone back to, you know, wherever they're from, and it dies just because it's, they keep asking, what's your secret? Good food, you know. And, <laughs> and it's true. That's the secret. It's, and... Because they will come one time for an autograph and a picture. If the food's not good, they're not coming back. So we just, I send spies. I send my friends, really? go get something to eat. You know, go buy something to yeah. eat. Tell me how, the, how the, the staff is. Tell me how the food is. And so my friends, they're all ex-convicts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't funny? Do you want me to wear a wire? No, don't wear a wire. <laughs> just be a customer. You know what I mean? <laughs> And, uh, uh, and, and, and the so, food, you know, yeah, but okay. they all, I've never gotten a bad report, you know, and, no. and, and take your mom, you know, because moms are like the best, you know. They're, they're, They'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like my, oh, I got to tell you, a good friend of mine, Clifton Collins, he's an actor, but he got a lot of the guys from the pen because Top Ramen is like money in the, in the pen. <laughs> There's a book. Uh, th that he made of all recipes for top ramen, and it's like this, it's this thick because they made so many recipes up there, you know, that they had to get creative, and some of them are delicious. <laughs> some of them you don't even know it's top ramen. Yeah, but is, is there a Trejo's ramen in the future? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I want to say, first of all, having been to uh, a couple of your restaurants, every time I go in. The employees are so happy. Yeah. They're happy to serve you. They're friendly. They clearly, it's a good work environment. Yeah, that's uh, so that's working. Yeah. But the food is really good. And <laughs> as you say, I think people may be surprised to hear yeah. that because it is a celebrity yeah. restaurant. And I think that's why you do get the repeat customers. But tell me a little bit, if you would, about uh, this chef you have, this person sort of overseeing it. He's a kid, right? Yeah. He's unbelievable. 23 Mason, years old. Mason, and he's like, he, wow. It's unbelievable. We like talk about stuff, and then he'll come up with it. I used to like, give my mom's recipe, but you know, it's it's moms used to cook with lard, yep. you know, and he's, that's out. We can't <laughs> put the lard in it, you know. And so it's like what he's done is made a, a chef inspired. What they call it, chef inspired. You know, his ideas and 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 my they've come out with some absolutely really good stuff. I didn't know what. Jackfruit was, you know. What I mean, I didn't. You know, and, uh, yeah. and then they gave me a, our cauliflower taco was number one last year for Los Angeles. You know, the recipe oh. for was yeah. number one and so, it's, it's in the LA so Times. Good. You know, and yeah, and uh, 
I always say, please don't tell me there was only two. <laughs> no, no, there was ten. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you you've got one. competition for tacos yeah. in this town, so that's a so, big and honor. It's like, so, and, and, and especially, ta- like I had said before, you know, it's like uh, we've got gluten-free, we've got vegetarian, we've got, you know, uh, uh, vegan, and then, and it's fun. We have a restaurant. We opened up one across the street from uh, USC. Mm-hmm. And the vegan and the gluten-free and the the vegetarian are big sellers because sure. all, all the health kids from <laughs> U.S. They're very healthy. Absolutely. <laughs> so, How about the donuts? Are those healthy too? Awesome. <laughs> They're so good. I go with that USC t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, Phil, you've been involved with some restaurant openings as well. I invest in restaurants. Yeah, I'm, so there's I'm nothing a, with your name I'm on it a lot. yet. No, 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 I don't need that. I, uh, but I invest, in, I invest in many restaurants for the main reason being, I think, is that I'm not very bright. <laughs> You've invested in some very, yes. not just successful, but really high-quality restaurants. I love it. I, to me, it's like supporting the arts. Yeah. So how that's do you, why I do it. What makes you say yes to some of these places? What, what gets you inspired? I taste the yeah. food, and, and once I taste the food and I, and I fall in love with the chefs, um, I'm in, and then I have a business manager who protects me from myself. <laughs> he has to look at the paperwork, and if it makes sense, then, then I'm in. <laughs> so so I, I, I love it. Why should this sense, our sense of taste, be any less than this sense or this sense, right? So to me, we, we, my wife and I are big into supporting all the other arts in our town, and to me, when you invest in a restaurant, it's another art form, and I think it makes the town better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We see this. Yeah. We see this everywhere. Um, had you, remind me of this, had you told me a story about trying the mozza pizza for the first time yes. when uh, Nancy was sort of testing that? She was testing it. She took a year uh, to work on the dough. That was her main criteria. I think she was inspired by Pizzeria uh, uh, Bianco uh, in, in Phoenix, which the New York Times said was the best pizza in the United States at this time. Uh, how many years ago? I don't remember. But I think this was 12, 13 years ago when Nancy was working on the dough for what was going to be Moza. She bought that space at Highland and uh, Mel, uh, Melrose. And... She had a few of us in to taste it. After a year of working on it on her own, I took one bite of this pizza. First of all, it was the best pizza I'd ever had at that moment. And it's exactly the same as it is today. So when it was ready for one person to taste, it was ready. This is like everything she touches is, is you know, she's like Midas, right? Uh, my daughter, who's here, was, I think, eight years old at the time. And we had just come back from a trip to Italy. And Lily ate the pizza. She said, Dad, no offense to Naples, but this is a little better. (laughs) I thought that should be in the window. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, Lily Roast. Do you wonder, uh, and this will sort of get us into the the art and craft of this part of this conversation, but do you wonder for someone like Nancy, who is an artist with dough, if there's, if she'll run out of avenues, if there's somewhere else to go? She could make a burger that would blow you away. She she really, if she opened a burger stand tomorrow, I've had her burgers, 
best hamburger I ever had. Because by the way, it's not just the quality of meat that she uses, but then she sources every ingredient. She makes the bun, right? right. She makes the ketchup. She makes the mustard, the mayonnaise. Every single ingredient she can make, you know? This is, have I talked too much about Nancy Silverton? Does it sound, I wish we it, could bring her out right Is now. it a little Wouldn't weird now? Yeah. And, and I think something uh, that we haven't, we haven't really talked about publicly. Uh-oh. Uh, you can't cook. <laughs> now, I know you're surrounded Listen, by great food. I meet a lot of chefs around the world. They can't write a sitcom. <laughs> we all contribute in our way. But there's no bigger fan. Absolutely. There's no bigger fan. I yeah. love it. And I think, you know, like a lot of you, maybe even those of you who cook, you enjoy when somebody can really do it. And when they can do it, you love these people, right? When somebody really does it, and you, you I couldn't be a bigger fan. Uh, I want an artist. Absolutely. Of artists. Yeah. Artist. Chef um, is an artist. Absolutely yeah. right. She didn't know I was going to do this, but Lily, will you come up here for a second? Oh. <laughs> this is Phil's daughter. <laughs> Yay, Lily! Look at Lily! <laughs> now, I'm sorry. Your, your father can't cook. Put her in the light. Can you, yeah, step over here. He can't cook. No. Can your mother cook? No. What? <laughs> and yet you eat very well, don't you? So, what were you fed growing up? I was fed... I, not a normal child ate what I ate. My dad would take me and I would try things that... Uh, like uh, uni, I would try uni, and at first I didn't like it, but I kept, he said, all you have to do is try it. You just have to try it. So I tried it, and I like, I like everything now. And it, yeah, and when I was little, my fa- this is embarrassing, and I'm sorry. My favorite food was foie gras. Uh, he took me to Paris, and I tried foie gras. I was like, this is fantastic. I want this all the time. And he was like, you can't have it all the time. <laughs> but yeah, he really broadened the horizons from an early start. Yeah, I think you got something that a lot of kids don't, even though yes. you weren't being fed at home. Exactly. My, my mom, she would cook things, and then if we said we liked it, that's all she would cook for the week. And so we said we didn't like anything, and he, we would take out a lot. It was very nice. We would often order in. It was good. <laughs> that's good. Thank you she for She ate coming. at my restaurant. She it's ate at your seat. I'll bring it to you. She ate at the restaurant in USC. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's she one of those health kids. She liked it. That <laughs> yeah. was cool. Uh, now, Danny, you have children, correct? Yeah, I have a three. Did, how, how did Danielle, you feed them? Gilbert and uh, Danny Boy. How, uh, how did you feed them growing up? Did they eat well? Uh, <laughs> did, <laughs> did you cook growing uh, up? Uh, for them growing up? For a while, I was a single parent. I used to go into the kitchen and I would like start kicking out pots and pans, and I'd throw flour, and and then I'd <laughs> I'd, I'd come up with like hungry man pancakes in a big stack, perfect, they're perfect, big stack, and I'd come out with those, and they really thought, wow, pots is unbelievable, and then finally they found the box. <laughs> Busted. But, uh, we ate at McDonald's. We had they really? knew us by first name at McDonald's. And at Pollo Loco, <laughs> and at Jack in the Box, and uh, but 
you know, the kids are doing pretty good. They like food now. Well, you <laughs> now, said your, now your daughter's like a good great food. cook, right? You said your daughter's a great cook at home. Yeah, she cooks really good. Yeah, and, uh, it's, and it's that same feeling of when your mom would serve yeah, everyone, she can yeah, do that. That's and, really nice. Uh, my son is, uh, he's like, he's just, he's like me, you know, we eat wherever we're at. <laughs> well, that that's something I want to talk about that all of you can speak to. Now, Phil, on Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, Not familiar with it. you. <laughs> you should watch it. It's a good show. On Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, you famously served your writers and your actors and your crew very well. Yes, we had the best craft service in town. You did. Can the you army talk about travels that? on its stomach. Right? I think if you go backstage and you see that table where the, the, the crew is supposed to eat, and, and it's usually just chips and candy and junk, and you go, you grab it, and your energy depletes, you're not truly happy, you're just doing it just to do it. But I thought, what if we had like uh, cinnamon buns from Ann Sather's in Chicago flown in once in a while? What if we had, uh, uh, you know, just incre- like deli from New York flown in, or or once a year crab claws from Florida, and we we take newspaper and cover the tables, get the hammers from the set, and we crack open the thing, right? So now, if the, things like this are on the craft service table, and we haven't met yet, and we're on the crew, we go over to the. Oh my God, have you had this? This is unbelievable. Yeah. Right away, we're talking, and it's about something nice, and that's how you make a family. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they, when they're a family, they work together. It's a happy environment. Yes. That's really nice. I liked it. Uh, does your <laughs> Does your crew on Somebody Feed Phil eat well? Nah, stop that. <laughs> if you'll see, you see the show, you see that I'll take a bite or two, and then you see me pass it. Because, uh, first of all, I can't eat every <laughs> single thing. And the other thing is, I have a crew of 16 people all looking at me, I'm not exaggerating, like this. <laughs> You gotta give them some. You, they'll kill me. They would eat me if I if I didn't. So, also, they, they they tell you how the show's gonna come out, and you want it to look good. I do, and they're great. And yeah. you know, it's only good if you can share it. That's true. That's really true. Yeah. Yes. Um, Danny, you've been on many many sets of films. Uh, is there a crew meal, or is there you know a catering that stands out to you that you remember from a, a really great experience? Heat. I did oh, yeah. a movie called Heat. Big budget. Yeah. Big budget. Good Heat. food. <laughs> and you know, we had De Niro and Pacino and big eat budget well. movie. Yeah. We had craft services. You know, it's kind of like the 50s when you'd walk into a bar and the table would be there, cold cuts and cheese and all this stuff. You know, it, it was a, a little better than usual. I, I just finished a film in New Mexico and, uh, Craft services considered of different kinds of chips, <laughs> and uh, different kinds of chips, <laughs> and some dip. Right. <laughs> it was because you know, the budget is like you know it's yeah. just the budget's a budget, so yeah. you know what you're getting into, you know. And uh, right. uh, but it's funny because when I was doing a movie called Badass, uh, the producer. Ash was the one that kind of said, "Hey, why don't you open a restaurant?" And because uh, he knew, understood I liked good food, and 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 he always had good food on the set, you know. And uh, so I just jokingly said, 
Trejo's tacos. <laughs> and then he came to me with a business plan. You know? <laughs> and being the genius that I am, I took it to my agent, Gloria. I'm here. What do I know about business? And, uh, and she kind of said, hey, this is a good deal. You know, you're, somebody's not asking for 500000 up front, you know. And uh, that's when we opened Trejo's Tacos. On Do you cater uh, craft services now for productions? Uh, depending on where I'm at. You know, if I'm in L.A., yeah, but I'm not catering out of state or anything like that. You but know. I'll bet, you know, for productions oh, yeah, no. here, they're happy when your truck oh, they shows love up. they love it. <laughs> when that yeah. truck pulls up, yeah. they love it. <laughs> That's true. And now, Nikki, I know you have done some sort of personal chef work and catering work as well, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me, Can you tell me about the challenges of doing that? You're on the other side. Yeah, well, um, when in between Azami and, and Naka, I did some... Uh, private chef work for people and it was really fun because there were homes where there, there were like two kitchens and that was really amazing to work out from and then there were homes where like the kitchen was about this size <laughs> and it was always a wonderful thing just to be able to understand and learn in different kitchens because I think at the end of the day if we know what we're doing no matter what kind of situations we're in, we find ourselves. It's there's always a way to figure something out, and if not, we'll just pretend <laughs> and like you know put some stuff on top of it to cover the mistake or something. Did that? Did working in those, uh, doing those private uh, chef jobs, prepare you for the restaurant in a different way to owning a restaurant before, running a restaurant before? I think the level of organization that you have to go through to take food outside is a lot of work and it does require a lot of uh, planning. Mm -hmm. So I have to be honest, I never want to do that again because I'm not (laughs) a very organized person. So I'd rather just stay in the kitchen. Well, and this is something I wanted to ask both of you, uh, and Carol, maybe you can speak to this. What do each of you bring to the party in running this restaurant? Oh, my gosh. So I think it's fairly clear to most of our staff on their first day that she is definitely the creative side of Ennaka. Um, which means that somebody has to keep things organized and has to keep things flowing when service is going instead of <laughs> being a clown half the time. <laughs> I'm the happiest chef. Well, no, yes, you said she's the happiest staff, chef. Our staff is always shocked because I think the impression of, of the way Chef's Table has portrayed and Naka mm-hmm. and Nikki, um, there's, there's definitely that side of her, <laughs> you know, but... We, we always talk about there's so much we have to think about and do that there's only so much capacity in her brain and my brain to be serious chefs in that way. Mm-hmm. So the other side of her, which is like this adolescent, you know, child. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way to relieve stress in the kitchen because there's so much going on. It's like when I'm not actually having to prepare the food, it's kind of nice to be, you know, there and make fun of everybody and torture them because I can because I'm the boss I can like torture every single person and then like after I finish making fun of them I'll just go back to my work what's the turnover at your restaurant we don't have any I've like had employees everybody's there and they just like ignore me and I'm like why are you why aren't you you know talking back to me and then just like Go away. <laughs> nice. Okay. Nice. Uh, well, I have a lot more questions for you guys, but I want to make sure we have time for questions from the audience. Do you all have questions? Um, while we do that, I'm going to give you guys one more question, uh, and then I'll, I'll sort of walk around with the microphone. Um, 
Is there a meal? Do you have a, a uh, Proust's Madeleine in your life? Is there a food that you can be given that will transport you back to a happy memory, a sad memory, a childhood memory? Is there something that triggers terrible your steak? <laughs> <laughs> I think I assume you try yeah. to avoid it now. No, I do. Uh, chocolate is good. Is that right? Is there a specific taste to chocolate that uh, a certain kind or, or I like dark chocolate, not mm-hmm. too dark, uh, but uh, yeah. Were I, you a candy kid? Yeah. <laughs> you had to sustain yourself. I mean, I, I I don't like things that are too sweet now, mm-hmm. but but there's a level where it's just perfect. Is there what are the sweets that you go for now? Chocolate. <laughs> Any kind though? What do you what like? Uh, if I see chocolate, I, if we're at t- at dinner and I see chocolate on the dessert menu, that's the one I'm going for. That's what I like. Is there? Am I alone? <laughs> egg cream. I love that you said eggs and cream. I love that. Have you? I want to make it for you right now. That's amazing. We should, right? we should set a, this it's up. It's like a chocolate soda. It's okay. very easy to make. I know. I saw you make it. I'm going to put it on your menu. I'm going to comment. I think you should. I think you finish with that. <laughs> right? Of course, in your restaurant, it would probably be this. <laughs> my, mom, my mom says it's because I'm small. That's why everything no, I make is small. Because you're delicate and refined, <laughs> and, and you don't need a brute like me coming in here. Ruining everything. Would, would, did you have egg creams growing up? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Was it was a... my dad. That my dad. That's what. That yeah. was his contribution. Oh, that's funny. A little bit of milk, a little bit of chocolate syrup. Right. Foxes, you bet, is the one. <laughs> right. And you start to stir it, and as you stir it, you add the seltzer, and a chemical reaction happens, and it produces a foam head like a beer, and it just. It's, a, it's amazing, and it is. A brilliantly named thing because <laughs> it conjures up some kind of exotic, luscious drink when it's just a penny, right? It's great. It's great. Uh, Nikki, is there that food for you? Is there something that brings you back to childhood or to a, a memory, a happy memory? I think um, the only thing I can think of is when I was growing up, I really liked just eggs over easy on rice oh, with soy sauce. That's, that's it. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Uh, was it something you made for yourself? It's something that my mom used to make for me, and it's something that I make in the kitchen when I don't have time to eat anything else right now. I so. love, there's something about chefs cooking for themselves in the kitchen that is always this very simple thing and very nourishing thing that I just love hearing about that. Yeah. Um, Carol, what do you eat in the kitchen before we get to your memory? We sadly don't have time to eat a lot of times in our kitchen. Yeah. We do a lot of uh, fish, collar. fish collar because mm-hmm. fish collar. we have a small kitchen, so we don't have a separate area where we could store stuff for like the staff meal. So they they love it when it's not a fish night, but typically three days out of the four that we're there, it's a fish collar yeah. night. That's like and pizza night is, is really popular. It's a pizza oh, night! No. Yeah. Where do you get your pizza over there? There's a place across the street that delivers at 12 midnight, so we just Perfect. order yeah. after. <laughs> Call in the Ennaka order, please. Yes. <laughs> uh, and what is your uh, food memory? What is it, what's something you can eat and it brings you back? No, I can't help but always think of my mom's spaghetti because everyone's mom, if they cook, has a certain way of doing spaghetti. And for my mom, 
she would dump like half the can of the processed craft Parmesan cheese in there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, so for me, it like brings back so much memories about being home and actually having time to sit with my parents to eat. Yeah. That's really nice. And Danny, what about you? What is a food that you can eat that, that reminds me you of your youth? Deep fried shrimp. Is that right? My mom would uh, like uh, just, you know, the <laughs> fryer, like throw just shrimp in there, bread it and throw it. And it's like, I remember it, just like, it was like the most delicious thing in the world. And then she made a a, a, a hot sauce, but a sauce, but... But it was like it's, it's more spicy than like in restaurants, mm -hmm. you know. It's really almost chilly, but it was delicious, you know. And, uh, I so good. wanted him to say the heart of my enemy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that brings back memories. <laughs> All right, let's get some questions from you guys. If you have a question, come meet me down in this aisle, please. I'll go to that aisle in a minute. But who has a question? I always have this debate with my son-in-law and my daughter. The restaurant scene, I say, is better in L.A. And she's says, no, it's in New York. So what do you think? <laughs> New York versus L.A. Well, I'm from New York, and I have a, a great love for New York. And there are many great restaurants, but we're a little better now. Here's the thing. In New York, every restaurant is packed because the people are packed together. And the restaurants are packed and you can't get in even if it's lousy. Yeah. So their competition is not as great as it is here. You have to be good to drive all the way to your restaurant, right? <laughs> you have to be good. Otherwise, you, you're not going to make it. So I think that alone, plus even more diversity here than in New York. No Mexican food in New York. <laughs> right? Can't believe it. There's one Mexican restaurant. I don't even think it's there anymore. It's just called Florencia 13. And, and it was from a guy from Florence who was running from the feds and he went to New York. They went to New York yeah. to hide out, and he opened up a restaurant, yeah, yeah. and he called it his neighborhood, but I think he came back already. You know? Well, well uh, what's his name from Puyol in Mexico City has a couple in New York. I mean, he's coming here, too. Yeah, that might, that might have started up, but before I remember walking around getting, like, Mexican food, what? Like, you know, Taco Bell is not Mexican food. <laughs> Uh, we have a question here from uh, a very famous writer, uh, Michael Horowitz. Michael, now you, I'm, we're going to take a minute here. Uh, you are, have done Jonathan Gold's 101 restaurants list. You completed that a few times. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Mike loves food. I expected I a much know. bigger guy. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. You take a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And you give the rest of the crew. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you are currently exploring breakfast burritos in town. Oh, what have, have been the stand what have been the standout? So, so far, I've got Tacos Via Corona in Atwater. Do you know that one? You know, they're open till eight now. You know I, that? Yeah, I heard that, actually. Uh, and uh, Griddle Cafe on Sunset. Oh, we know that. And uh, the Rooster Truck is fantastic. The Rooster so Truck? Just, yeah. It's usually in Santa Monica, I think, right? Did you Too catch far. it on this side? actually on Fairfax as well. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just curious if you guys have any other contenders for breakfast burritos. Danny! Come on, go over to Treo's Cantina. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Do you, Danny? And I got friends. You better like it. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, do what he do, says. 
Yeah, Danny, come do on, you... you're invited. Come on down. Oh, I like uh, Colfax. Bring Colfax. your family. On yeah. Fairfax, yes? That's good, too. That's your favorite? Best one. Best one. Don't see, he's right here. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, do you check out the competition? No. <laughs> No, they don't like it when I walk in. They're, they, get, they get afraid. <laughs> uh, other questions over here? So much of the food culture, well, the change in the food culture and what we're talking about in food culture and what we're praising in food culture is new or like a spin on something new. Um, what restaurants in Hollywood that kind of retain old Hollywood glamour? Mousson Franks. That, that All right. You go to and visit and, you know, Chicken how do you pot about pie the on Thursday nights. Businesses might Delicious. be kind of struggling because they aren't keeping up with the trends of change. So Musa and Frank's is sort of a classic Los Angeles restaurant. It's still, there, it's still full. It's like, it's go there full. anytime. It's like still, it's still, uh, you still have to have a reservation and the food is, deli- again, it's like the secret is great food and the staff is like, uh, yeah. and I used to have a bookie there, Manny, he was like the bookie. At <laughs> least any kind of bet you wanted. He could work for Trump. <laughs> oh, Hollywood. Um, uh, there's a Korean restaurant that uh, my, my Korean neighbors took us to 20 years ago, and it was old then. It's from 1945. It's in Koreatown. It's called Dang Il Jang, and I think it's some of the best Korean barbecue anywhere on earth. It's so good. Have, has anyone been there? I recommend it. And to, to what do you attribute the staying power of these good. restaurants? It has to good be good. food. Yeah, that's it. If it wasn't good, like Danny said, it wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. Thank you. Okay, I have a question for Phil. Uh, when we start, started watching your show, there's a moment in almost every show when you taste something usually made by some little lady that's about this tall, and then there's a look on your face, and then your face just grows, and then you become speechless. Are those first takes? There's no acting on the show. (laughs) Not an actor. (laughs) He does not have a SAG card. (laughs) I can't play poker. But now we wait to watch your face just go like that. That's very sweet. Thank you. Let, uh, let me ask uh, um, about the shows. Um, and you have this new season coming up, uh, July 6th. How do you find restaurants? Oh, uh, I, I have a production company that I use. It's the same one as Anthony Bourdain's. Oh, really? Yeah. So they have boots on the ground in <laughs> everywhere on earth because... Mr. Bourdain has done this for 18 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm very lucky to take advantage of the people that he has used. Once in a while, I'll go to the same places that he's been because they tell me it's either going to be a very different take on the place or, you know, if I came to your, it would be a different show than yeah. Chef's Table, right? Absolutely. It would be from a regular idiot's point of view, <laughs> uh, tasting her food. But I think that that's somewhat relatable because we're all of us, most of us aren't experts. Most of us aren't chefs. For sure. And so I'm looking for these places. So they tell me, and then I do my own research, which you can do too. We're holding the dice usually <laughs> 90% of the time. Our hand, best restaurants, Lisbon. 
And I go. And then I cross-reference to the other websites and the other. And then I ask the people there. And then I always leave room in the schedule when we're there. We shoot for 10 days for discoveries, serendipity. A chef at one place says, you're going there for ramen? No, no, no. The great ramen is over here, right? And sometimes he'll take us. And we use that. We want it to be somewhat spontaneous also because that's exactly how we travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's important, and I know you've talked about this uh, quite a bit, but the reason for doing the show. Can you, can you talk about that? I'm trying uh, to get you people? to travel. Yeah. I'm trying to. It's a, it's a show. It's only a food show on the surface. Secret behind it is that it's about people. I think the world would be better if we all could experience a little bit of someone else's experience, Right. I, I think uh, I, I also think food is the great connector. And then for me, laughs are the cement. That, that if, we, if we sit and eat together, if the food is good, we, we're already a little happy. And then if we share a laugh, then now we're friends. We're going to eat yeah. again. So I say instead of a wall, how about a table? Come on. You know, that's, that's the good thing about L.A. is that you can travel without leaving Los Angeles. That's I mean, it. Absolutely. So I do one show uh, uh, every six yeah. that's set in an American and, uh, city. I know everybody can't afford to Anthony travel. Bourdain ate at my restaurant. Did he like it? Said he wouldn't eat anyplace else in L.A. Excellent. Because <laughs> he's very smart. Well, he knows who you are. <laughs> right. He's intimidated. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take these last two questions and then we I will wrap up. I told friends. He only knows the judo. You have the... Okay, my, okay, my question's for Mr. Trejo. Uh, my question... Always. Hey, Dan, Danny, this is a question for you. Okay, so I can understand your cantinas, your, your Danny's uh, tacos. I've eaten at them. They're delicious. Wouldn't eat anywhere else. But what is your inspiration behind opening a donut shop? Wait, before you answer the question, that is on the entire opposite end of the spectrum. Well, first of all, uh, I like the police. (laughs) 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 They they stop there. And and you know what? It was just a given because it used to be a place called Donut Time. And uh, it was really famous by a movie called Tangerine. And... uh, and so when it closed, it was just like a given, let's do it, you know, and uh, who doesn't like donuts? You know, it's like, God, so uh, the first day we opened, we ran out of donuts by 10 o'clock, like two hours, we were out of donuts. And, <laughs> and now, so now we got like, you know, we're running out at two o'clock and we're like, uh, you know, people are buying three or four dozen. We've had people come all the way from like Lancaster and pick up four dozen donuts and go back, you know. So it's like uh, I have to order. If I want donuts, I have to order them the day before, you know. <laughs> hey, give me some donuts. I'll pick up some donuts, you know. But uh, yeah. well, they're, they're I, I, great. I, I love donuts. If you go there, try the pineapple fritter. God. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we all have Thank our you. favorites, and it says a lot about us. Uh, last question right here. Um, I am wondering, how is it that you make all of these wonderful friends and connections in the food industry? Specifically, Phil, like, I love food, but I'm not having Nancy Silverton asking me to taste the first mozzarella pizza, you know? So how did that happen for you and then for the others, um, other food experiences that you've had to make those special connections? 
Yeah, how did you go from being a fan to a friend? Right. That's so I think if you're a fan, and let's say I was I was going to eat at Ennaka, and I made an effort to talk to Nikki and Carol, that's it. You know, when I was a kid, and I would go, I would ask, could I see the kitchen? Most people are nice, and they like enthusiasm. They, that's why they do this. It's like going up to Danny and asking for an autograph. He's, you know, oh, sure. That's, you know, part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing, to connect. We're all looking for connection. So if you make that little bit of effort, most people, I'm not saying all the people, but most people will be nice. And now I have to be honest. The other reason that... Nancy will let me taste something is because I invested in the restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Phil, we were talking talking before uh, we started, and I told you I was very nervous to have this conversation. It's not the sort of... (laughs) uh, Mostly because of you. But you're a tough guy. Yeah. Uh, because it's not the sort of conversation I usually do on the writer's panel. I usually talk about writing, the yes. business and process of writing. And you said, I think chefs are like writers. Chefs are writers. Let's when talk about it. You write a recipe. You put ingredients that haven't been put together before. These are thoughts that haven't been connected before. This is writing. These are great writers. Yes. Uh, Nikki, I told you I was going to ask you about this. <laughs> uh, how do you see, you know, you do a coursed meal. Right. Is there, are you telling a story with that? Um, I always see it as the complete meal. Mm-hmm. And then it's very important for us when we're putting together the menu that each course is somehow related to the course before and after. Because we, we're thinking about, um, we do serve 13 courses, so it's a lot of food, but we also want you not to feel overly stuffed at the end of the meal because, and then that, that takes, thought and that takes time to plan things like we we can't serve you food that's really heavy one right after the other it has to like be heavy and then it'll go a little bit lighter and then there's all the it's like a movement and I think the best story that it can tell is when you finish the whole meal you're not overly like too full but you've enjoyed this sort of exploration of ingredients and the seasonality of everything that's the fun it's part a for beautifully us. thought out, and you you feel that thought, and it makes the food taste even better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to wrap up by asking you uh, first of all, everybody, check out Trejo's Tacos, Cantina, Coffee and Donuts. Visit Ennaka, and be sure to watch Somebody Feed Phil on July sixth uh, on Netflix. <laughs> uh, do where are you, where do you go in this season? Copenhagen, Dublin. Cape Town, South Africa. Oh, wow. Venice, Italy. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> Buenos Aires. I, I rode a horse. <laughs> oh, tune in for that. Uh, and New York Gloria, City. am I going to Buenos Aires? I am. I'll see you in Buenos Aires. You're going? Yeah. I Do got you have some, food I got some steak for you. Oh, you're going to go crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, I can't wait to watch these Thank new you. adventures. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask all of you to recommend some Los Angeles restaurants for us. What is a place that you love, that you hit every time you're in town, uh, that you recommend to people who maybe don't eat at restaurants all the time because they're intimidated to try something new? If you're not eating at Trejo's Cantina, I would say uh, 
if you want to see LA, go to the uh, the either the pantry for if you want to eat. If you want to dine, go to Muso and Frank's. That's great. Oh, that's yeah, great. Great answer. Can By I'll the way, can we can we plug Homeboy Industries? I think that oh, this is a, yes. So we Thank we you. love them. Yeah. And and I want you to buy their their breads and pastries. They're wonderful, and a lot of the top restaurants have their stuff. But also the home girls have this wonderful cantina also, and and they work there, and that that's delicious, and it's downtown. Yeah, too. it's really it's an incredible program that they yes have Alameda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live there. Beautiful. Um, people should look. You were going to say, I'm sorry, uh, I cut her off. To them. I cut her no, off. No, not at all. Uh, Carol, recommend a restaurant for us, please. So I was going to say, um, there's this amazing Korean shabu shabu. Place called Soul Garden. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where is that? It's um, like right here, like Olympic and Bonnie Bray. Yeah. Wow. You oh, guys go, Wolokan? Yeah, it's great. Can I meet you there? Will you yes. take me? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, that, that's how you get in. <laughs> That uh, was Nick, hard. That's Nick, how you make friends. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you make sure you're on stage so they're under the, you know. <laughs> it's all being recorded. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Nikki, another recommendation? Um, I love Italian food. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like um, Soto and Bestia. Yeah. Those are my two favorite places. Bestia is Great. hard to compete with. So right the guy now. from Soto, he has Rosso Blue yes. now. Yes. And that, that's, have you been there yet? I've not been there yet. Come on, I'll take you. And, <laughs> yes. and uh, the other great restaurant downtown that just opened is called Bavel, and it's from Ori, who did yes. Bestia, and he's been working on this. He's from Israel, so this is the best Middle Eastern food in uh, the United States. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. It like shot to the top. Yes, unbelievable how good it is. Just opened two weeks ago. I, we always, any time we go anywhere, we ask Phil for recommendations because he's eaten anywhere and the guy's got taste. Please give a round of applause to all of our guys. Danny Trejo, Carol Nakamaya, Luke Nakamaya, Phil Rosenthal. Thank you guys for being Let's here. Let's eat. We got to eat. We got chicken. Feed the people. Let's, let's get fed. Thank you for listening to the Writers' Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.